You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Hey, good to see you, Resonate. My name is Chris. I have the joy and honor of being one of our pastors here at Resonate Church. We are walking through a sermon series called Red Letters. We're examining the very words of Jesus. And it's so important because no one ever spoke like Jesus did. I mean, people interacted with him uh, and he said things that no one had ever heard, not just because he was able to put together a certain type of sentence structure or use a certain cadence, but because his words were the very words inspired by God, perfect, errorless, uh, and timeless. And so we are looking uh, very clearly at what Jesus's words were in history. Today, we get to dive into some of the most important words ever spoken. And I'm so grateful that uh, our church has been built and founded on these words of Jesus, uh, that you are a product of what Jesus said in these passages that we will enter into today. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited to get into it. So I wanted to just start by asking you this, how far would you go to tell somebody a certain message? How, how far would you go if you knew there was something very important to get to somebody, some very urgent message, how far would you go to get that message to them? Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about this. Uh, just a few uh, weeks back, I got the opportunity to go to Elevate, our summer project in San Diego. And uh, we drove from Pullman, Washington to San Diego, California. Uh, we drove all the way across Washington, all the way down I-5 uh, until we got to uh, San Diego. And the entire trip was about 2,300 miles one way. So uh, I show up at our Elevate project and see this group of students who are so eager to learn about Jesus, who have uh, raised support so they can be there in that place, uh, really investing in their relationship with Christ, uh, there to help kind of teach them about these core competencies of being a disciple of Christ. And if you're not familiar with this at Elevate, they're really sectioned uh, topics out into four categories. The first is inviting and how we need to be invitational people as Christians. The second is connecting and how we actually have a relational component with one another. The third is discipling and making disciples and how this is such a critical aspect of the Christian life. And the fourth is sending and actually sending beyond where we see ourselves today, but thinking about the next place where the Lord might be taking us. And I was tasked with the responsibility to teach our Elevate students on this competency of discipling. So we drive 2,300 miles down from Pullman down to San Diego. And the whole way I'm remembering the stories of what God had done in my life through Resonate Church and through the Elevate, uh, the Elevate program that we put that we put on there, the discipleship program that we put on there. And I was remembering back to the fact that I met Jesus 13 years ago. 13 years ago, I had this experience, not where I decided to follow Christ, but much more like he made himself irresistible to me. For my wife, Tannis, it was 11 years ago. And we got involved with Resonate Church in Pullman at WSU. And there was a group of people that came around us to show us what life in the kingdom of God truly looked like, to call us out of worldly pursuits and to call us into a life that was purposeful and meaningful in the kingdom of God. And they, they spoke things to us about who they saw us being. And they gave us a lens 
to see ourselves in the world and to see the world and how it interacts with us and the kingdom of God. And they gave this to us. And then we went to Elevate together and we fell in love at Elevate. That's that's our story. I don't know if you knew that. But our first summer going down, Tannis and I fell in love at Elevate. So we went down as single individuals. And then the next year we went down again as a dating couple. And then the next year we had graduated and we went down to teach at Elevate. And then the next year we brought our one-year-old daughter down to Elevate. And then we had a couple years off and this past trip we brought our one-year-old son, our four-year-old daughter, and now both of us down. So really, I mean, every season of our life has had this discipleship component connected to it, and specifically how we've done it here at Resonate Church through Elevate. I'm thinking about all these things as I'm driving down. I'm thinking about these things and going, how can I possibly articulate to this group of people how unbelievably significant it is to live your life on mission, to sacrifice so that you can invest in your soul and invest in what God is doing to you and in you. So we drive down there, we get there for the teaching night, and I stand in front of this group of students and I tell them, I've driven 2,300 miles to tell you this sentence. As I say it, everyone's eyes lift up at me. They pull out their pens. They pull out their journals. I was like, wow, this is the best opener I've ever had in any sermon. I drove 2,300 miles to tell you this sentence. And here's what I told them. I told them God's primary calling on your life is to be a disciple maker. That's what I told them. I drove 2,300 miles to get here, to stand in front of you in a hot church on a Tuesday night to tell you this, God's primary calling on your life is to be a disciple maker. That's my whole talk, that's the whole thing. I wanna give some biblical basis for this and then finish out with three reasons why I see a life that is aimed towards making disciples is the fullest life and the greatest calling that Jesus could have given us. And I don't just believe that this is for those college students in that room, in that place in San Diego, I believe this is for you. And I would say this to every single person who is tuning in, uh, God's primary calling on your life is to be a disciple maker. Have you ever seen a movie where the end of the movie is actually the first scene? You ever seen a movie like that? It's almost like the director gives away the ending to the movie to the movie uh, the movie in the very first scene. It's actually a uh, it's, it's it's a tactic of great directors where they want to show you they want to tease for you how the story ends, and then basically the entire movie you're wondering how did they possibly get to that ending. So if you've seen Saving Private Ryan. This is how it starts with the very ending scene. If you've seen Fight Club or Pulp Fiction, it starts off, I mean, these incredible movies. Uh, you know, and I'm also thinking about Sonic the Hedgehog. You know, great cinematic history. And it starts off, you know, going, hey, you're probably wondering how I found myself in this situation. And everyone on the other side of the camera, everybody who's watching as a part of the audience is going, how does the story possibly end that way? Well, I want to ask, is it possible that because God has given us the Bible. Is it possible that because he's given us the Bible, and in the Bible we see both the opening pages of history and the closing pages of history, is it possible that we can go to the end and actually ask, how do we get to the way that God has spelled out that history will culminate? 
is it possible that we can get there? And to go there, I want to ask if we turn together to Revelation chapter 7. The nations around the throne room of God. The nations around the throne room of God. This is Revelation chapter 7. Here's the picture. The picture is that all tribes, all tongues, all nations... All people are represented in front of the throne room of God and they are worshiping, they are declaring that that God alone is holy, that his glory and his worth belongs to him alone, to the lamb who is seated on the throne. You've probably read this scripture or at least heard this scripture before. This is how God shows that history will end. This is how God shows that the the, the final pages of scripture will be completed is in this picture, the nations gathered around the throne. It's almost like the opening ceremony of the Olympics, if you've ever seen it. People parade around from every different nation. Their national anthem is playing, the flags are waving, they're dressed in their colors, except for in this scene here in scripture, people are not representing their own country, they're representing the kingdom of God. They're not waving their own flag, they're waving the banner of Christ exalted overall. And they're not uh, singing their own national anthem, they're singing songs to the one who has adopted them into his family, into his people, namely the Lamb who is Jesus. So we know that the story ends. We know that history will continue into eternity with all tribes, all tongues, all people gathered around the throne. That's the end scene. That's the end scene. But if you look at the very opening pages of your scripture, of, of your Bible and of scripture, you see something very different that seems to counteract the end scene. And if you think about these things together, you might go, how is this even going to be possible? Because in Genesis chapter 11, there's a unbelievable thing that happens where it seems like God is almost working against his own vision to get everyone around his throne. Genesis chapter 11, the people on earth begin building a huge tower to essentially establish themselves as the ultimate authority in the universe. We wanna build up to the sky. We wanna have a total dominion and power over the earth and of the world. And we're gonna do this in this place called Babel. In Genesis 11, chapter eight, the Lord saw this and he scattered them. He scattered them all over the earth. They stopped building the city and that's why it's called Babel because the Lord confused their language of the whole world. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole world. So in Genesis chapter 11, you see a people that are united in one geography, speaking one language, doing something that looks unholy. And God goes, yeah, that's not going to fly. And he scatters them across the world. And in Revelation chapter seven, you see not a scattered people, but a gathered people in front of the throne, worshiping. So the question is, how do you get from Genesis chapter 11 to Revelation chapter 7? What happens in the middle? In the middle of those 66 books, in the middle of the pages of history, how do we possibly get scattered and and, and, and reckless and not united to being gathered and unified and united in Christ? How does it happen? What attention this is. Well, Jesus actually puts forth the strategy in his red letters in the New Testament for how we will get from the scattered people across the world to the gathered people before the throne. And that strategy is here. Do you know what a strategy is? It's disciple making. 
Disciple making is his strategy. All of scripture screams this. Every page illuminates this, that God's primary calling on your life is to be a disciple maker. I think right now, everybody is asking, what is my calling? Whether you're in college or whether you're out of college and about to enter into a midlife crisis or you're evaluating your worth and your success on this planet, what have you contributed? What is your great contribution to the world and to the kingdom? After you get identity in line, after you know whose you are and who you belong to, after you know whose people you belong to, then you start asking questions about calling. Well, because I belong to Jesus, because God has saved me, now what? Now what do I do? And this is the primary calling for every person in the kingdom of God to be a disciple maker. I want to show you where Jesus clearly lies, lays this out. First, we'll go to Matthew chapter 4, and then we'll go to Matthew chapter 28. Neither of these are probably foreign to you, but I'd like to link them together. Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus is calling. He's calling He's, he's giving a calling to his disciples. And this is what he says, follow me and I will make you something. I will make you into something. If you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Come, follow me. This is the call. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Wow, what a picture that is. How clear that is. I mean, Jesus promises a lot of stuff. He does. I mean, he speaks towards the benefits of following him often. He speaks towards the costs of following him often. And in Matthew 4.19, you see one of these places where a very clear directive, a very clear directive is given. And it's given at the moment where people begin following him. The calling comes in this moment. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You will gather men and women unto me like their fish, like fish being gathered. I mean, these were fishermen that some of them that he's talking to, everybody would have recognized this. If you follow Jesus, it's like you're fishing and bringing fish in, scattered from all over the place, from every nook and cranny of the ocean. They're coming into one place, gathered, united, and Jesus goes, yeah, following me is like that, except for not with fish, with men and women. God's primary calling on your life is to be a disciple maker. And he goes further into this. That's the moment of calling towards his disciples. The moment where he ascends back towards the Father is spelled out in what we call the Great Commission. The Great Commission, it's great in cost. It costs so much for the people who have been commissioned. It is great in scope. I mean, this is a worldwide, history-long commission. It is such a great commission. It's also great in benefit. It is so beneficial for the hearts and of the souls of the people who he has called. Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded them. Go make disciples. Go, 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 go. Go make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey what I have commanded them. This is called the Great Commission. The final words that Jesus delivers. His opening words 
to them as he calls them. I'll make you fishers of men if you follow me. His final commission to them, go and make disciples. God's primary calling on your life is to be a disciple maker. It's a responsibility to join Jesus in the work that he is already doing in the world, to gather the nations back to him. So disciples of Jesus see God's primary work as redeeming the nations. He is redeeming. He is gathering the scattered unto him before the throne. It's redemption and it is reconciling the whole planet back to himself. And disciples go, well, if that's God's primary work, then that's my primary work as well because he has called me to follow him in his footsteps as he works. It's an invitation to be used in God's strategy to make things the way that he intended them to be. This commission was delivered to his followers to create more followers. And when followers create more followers, then the entire world can know Jesus. We get from Genesis 11 to Revelation 7 when followers create more followers. Traditionally, uh, we've used the term discipleship to describe this. But in our church, it resonates. We kind of shy away from the word discipleship, if you've noticed this. And we instead use a word called disciple making. Discipleship is this. It's becoming more and more like Jesus. Discipleship, a kind of clearly um, you know, agreed upon definition is when a person becomes more and more like Jesus, that is Christian discipleship. But we use the term disciple making and we invite people into disciple making, not discipleship. And it's a subtle but very intentional verbiage choice there because discipleship is something that you see as being done to you. Whereas disciple making is something that you have the responsibility to do. So in discipleship, if we all thought about discipleship, then we might be waiting for someone to approach us to help us become more like Jesus. And that's not a bad thing, but if everyone is waiting for discipleship to happen to them, then nobody is actually engaging in discipleship. So instead, we use the word disciple making. Disciple making is being the catalyst for people to become more and more like Jesus. If you have not heard of the Great Commission, you are not alone. In fact, nearly half of all Christians in America have never heard of the Great Commission, according to a Barna study in 2018. Nearly half of all Americans, or all Christians in America, have never heard of the Great Commission. In fact, only 17% even know what it means. That is wild to me. That is wild to me. And if you're in Gen Z, the number of people that have a biblical worldview in Generation Z is 4%. 4%. I share that statistic with ministry partners who are not a part of our church, and they cannot believe their ears. I thought it was so much more than 4%. I had no idea how bad it is. I mean, if you're not Gen Z, if you're a millennial or a boomer, or if you're Gen X, this number 4% should haunt you. I mean, this should be so strikingly clear why we plant churches on college campuses, because there are 4% of people in Gen Z who have a biblical worldview 
a biblical worldview. Of that 4%, I would just ask, how many do you think are making disciples? How many do you think are taking on the responsibility of getting the baton of the gospel, the torch of the gospel to the next generation? How many? Much, much less than 4%, I would say, which means this, if you are Gen Z right now, and, and you're, you're listening to this and you're hearing this, you are so unique in your generation. And it is not by accident that God has you in the room that he has you in right now. It's not accident that he has you in the role that he has you in right now. This is for a purpose. God's primary calling on your life is to make disciples. And there are not many people who even know that in your generation. If you're older and you're post-grad, you should champion this. The next gen is desperately lost. I mean, this is not a Christian generation, a Christian America that we are walking towards. This is a post-Christian America. This is the masses, 96% walking around blindfolded in total darkness. How do we leverage everything that we have to make disciples of the next generation? God's primary calling on your life is to be a disciple maker. What are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this? The sin of humanity really did break the world in Genesis chapter 3. It fractured the picture of God's perfect design. Man and God living in an intimate bond together, nothing wedging its way in the middle, where God would speak and mankind would obey and it would bring glory to God and human flourishing towards mankind. And God saw that broken in Genesis chapter 3. And instead of taking a step back, instead of giving good advice to people to hopefully figure it out on, its, on their own, he stepped in, entered into the scene, entered into the picture, wrapped himself in human flesh, and got his hands dirty with us to see the brokenness reversed, not to tell us how we can start to act good and live good in the midst of the brokenness, but to say, I will fix all that is broken and busted in the world through sin. This God gave himself for us in flesh and in blood. He entered into the danger and the muck and the mire of the physical world. He entered on a, in a manger and he died in a physical sense upon a cross so that our fracture can be unfractured and fixed and united and made whole. And that life that he lived between the manger and the cross is the model for disciple making. The things that Jesus did, the way that he lived, the things that he cast away, the, the, the worldviews that he refused to enter into, the things that he did to love people who the kingdom of God was close to, that is the content of disciple making for us as Christians. And he, in this story, proves that he is the only one worth imitating. The only person that can enter into the brokenness to fix what is broken. The only one who would love us enough to lay down his life, to unite us back to our original design and our original purpose. He alone is worthy of being imitated and obeying. And this is the very thing that we are called to do as disciples. There is no life found outside of Jesus. But to think that disciple making is only happening in the Christian world is a very false understanding. Culture is absolutely making disciples. Not of Jesus though. Culture is making followers, but not of Jesus. Culture makes incredible followers. I mean, there's trillions and trillions of dollars spent on marketing 
comfort to you, to be a consumer. And comfort to, to get you to conform to a brand or a way of thinking or to use your money or to use your time or to use your lifestyle and your social momentum towards that other thing that is not Jesus. See, we are all looking for someone to follow, looking for someone to imitate. And church, it is your primary primary calling on this planet to point the eyes of people to imitate and to follow Jesus, not what culture says that they should follow, not what society says that they should follow. If we don't make disciples towards Jesus, then culture surely will make disciples towards everything else. Jesus is the only purpose that is eternal. He is the only king that is forever. And he is the only one who is all powerful and all wise and all loving, benevolent, good. And we get to join him in the work and bringing the nations around the throne, starting in your city where you are, starting in your campus, starting in your workplace, starting in your neighborhood to join God in the reconciling and redemptive work of gathering the scattered people under his name, before his throne under his banner. And this is the great commission. This is the great commission that Jesus has given to us. In the Old Testament, the model of growing the kingdom of God was for the nation of Israel to grow, to make disciples of their own family lineage, to multiply and prosper from one nation, from one culture, and to become this type of people that grows and grows and grows. And that was a good model. So the nation of history was a cultural and a hereditary nation, but the New Testament model, Jesus calls us his people now. Those of us who are not a part of the nation of Israel culturally or hereditarily, the kingdom model for growth in the New Testament is not to make, not only to make disciples of our kids, but to make disciples of other people's kids. And this is so much larger. Now the nation of Israel in a spiritual sense is all of the people that belong to Jesus, no matter their skin tone, no matter their age, no matter their place of geographic residence. It's not your biological bloodline that determines now who you raise up into Christ, but you take the responsibility for all people to bring them close to Christ. And we get this in the Great Commission. And in Matthew 4, 19, follow me. I'll make you fisher of men. Go, make disciples of all nations. God's primary calling on your life is to be a disciple maker. If you have uh, read anything or listened to anything by Francis Chan, you might be stirred by his view on this. He wrote a marriage book called You and Me Forever, which I would recommend. And in his marriage book, marriage book, this is what he writes. You should not make a single decision as a Christian without the words, make disciples factoring into that decision. So Francis Chan writes in a marriage book, you should not make a single decision as a Christian without the words, make disciples factoring in. Why would he write that in the marriage book? Well, could it be that marriage is a decision that we tend to make without the question of how will I make disciples factoring into that conversation or that situation? Where should I work is a question that should have a lens of making disciples overlaid 
on this decision. Whom should I marry is a question that should be answered with the lens of how will we make disciples as a part of that question? Should I take the job in Atlanta or in Seattle? Making that decision should be run through the lens of making disciples and all other situations that we find. In fact, the man who discipled me in college used to say this to me all the time, Chris, the gospel hit you on its way to somebody else. The gospel hit you on its way to somebody else. So I think for many of you, this next season of going deeper into Christ, deeper into maturity in Christ, looks like doing so through the process of making disciples. I mean, for many of you, you're praying, what's next? What's next for me? What's next for me? And you might be thinking it's marriage. You might be thinking it is job. You might be thinking it's geography. In fact, how do you see those things through the lens of God's primary calling on my life is to make disciples, to be a disciple maker. And for some of you, the next season of maturity looks like making disciples through that. So I want to finish by giving you three benefits to living a life that is aimed towards making disciples of Christ as your primary calling. I want to actually say this too. Um, When I say primary calling, I don't mean soul calling. I don't mean only this is your calling. I mean, I do think God has given many of us things to do that don't look like one-on-one discipleship or group discipleship. But I, I don't think that you can live and die without having this as the lens through which you see all of the work that you do in your life. So, I mean, another way to say this would be like, you could accomplish a lot in your life, but if you don't accomplish it through the lens of seeing this as your primary calling, how do I bring the nations closer to Jesus, then everything that you've accomplished is actually a loss. If you accomplish all of it, but you miss this primary thing. And I would also say on the flip side, man, if you aim your life towards this as your primary thing and everything else gets destroyed, everything else has no traction to it, but you live as a disciple maker, you've won. You've won in the long term. There's three ways that I've seen God not only be glorified, but we as people benefit through living with our primary calling as being a disciple maker. The first is the actualized and sensed presence of God. The actualized and sensed presence of God. On the backside of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus follows it up with this, surely I will be with you always. Surely I will be with you always. And this promise is connected to making disciples in a very... um, Man, I I just don't know if you can divide these two. I think God's presence will absolutely be with you if you go through life and you miss some of this. But I think that the fullness of his presence becomes so manifest and clear when you aim your life towards serving other people and bringing them near to him because it's the type of thing you can't do without his presence presence. It necessitates a nearness to God. It necessitates his power being manifest and work in you. So you could cook a meal without Jesus's help. You can ride your bike without the Holy Spirit intervening, but you cannot bring a person to sacrifice their own selfishness in light of the glory of Jesus and his cross 
without the Holy Spirit and without Jesus tangibly entering in. You cannot help a person to believe in the foolishness of the cross over the wisdom of the world without the intervening of God's actualized and sense presence, both in you and in them. You can't call a person to lay down the idols that they have in their life at the feet of Jesus without Jesus actually helping in that. And this creates an incredible dependence on God that I think many of you might have in the next season of your life, a desperation for him as you interact with people who are lost and who are broken and who need to lay down the things of this world in order to follow him more clearly. God's primary calling on your life is to be a disciple maker. The second thing is the accelerated personal growth that you get from making disciples. Accelerated personal growth. In 2011, Time Magazine ran a study and featured an article on something called the protege effect, the protege effect. And in this, in this study, they concluded that research showed that teaching other people is the best way to learn. Now, any elementary school or middle school, high school teacher will confirm this, that if you teach content or you teach principles to another person, you learn it better. In fact, on average, the evidence shows that firstborn children are more intelligent than their siblings. Okay, any firstborn out there? Yeah, okay, you're, you're getting your moment right now of recognition, okay? You're getting it right now. On average, you are more intelligent than your siblings if you are the firstborn. Why is it? It's this very reason. You have to model and teach everything that you learn to your younger siblings. In fact, engineers tried to capitalize this in learning theory. Engineers from Stanford teamed up with engineers at Vanderbilt University. And what they did was created an AI program, artificial intelligence program that got adopted by by an elementary school, uh, and, and essentially what happened is this, uh, sorry, a middle school, and this AI technology simulates a learning mind. And they downloaded these programs onto a, a specific computer for every single student in this middle school. And what the students were required to do was as they learned geography, to then teach what they were learning to this AI bot. And what, what, what happened was test scores skyrocketed for these students because as they learned, they were forced to teach at the same time. And what happened was intellect grew, knowledge grew, understanding grew, test scores skyrocketed because as you teach, you learn yourself. Jesus knew this. He knew this in the Great Commission. You wanna follow me? Go make fishers of men. I'll teach you how to be a fisher of men. And as you fish for men, you will learn what it means to follow me. As you teach other people how to obey, you will learn how to obey. As you teach other people to do the things that I've commanded, you will understand the things that I have commanded. You become more Christ-like as you teach others to become more Christ-like. Jesus knew psychology, he knew learning theory, and he knew that the primary calling on your life is to be a disciple maker, that you would know him and understand him more deeply. If you're involved in the redemption and the reconciliation of other people, you will understand him more. The third is this, and this is my finishing point. The access to kingdom resources through building the kingdom family that we get as making disciples. If you're on a church plant right now, you understand this different than 
maybe anybody else. Jesus promised something in Mark chapter 10. I just want to read it to you. This is what he promised his disciples. Truly, I'll tell you, no one has left home or brothers. No one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields. No one's left those things for the gospel and for me who will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, they will also receive eternal life. This is what he's saying. Nobody who has left everything for me will lack. Nobody who has left all of those resources and assets of the present physical world will not gain those things, not just in eternity, but here on earth as well. Uh, Jacob Dahl, the pastor in Ellensburg, our site pastor in Ellensburg, texted me this in the first year that we were planting in Eugene. He texted me this verse. And I remember thinking, this is crazy because we don't believe in a prosperity theology. We don't believe in the prosperity gospel that says, if you give, God will give you more assets. We don't believe in that. But this says something so specific. And it wasn't until we moved that I realized a hundredfold back to us. This is what he's talking about. Homes and families and possessions in this life. I never understood this until we started making disciples. And I realized I now have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers that I never had before. I now realize that every house of a believer in our city that's part of our church is almost like my house. And, and my house is almost like their house. I would tell our staff all the time, you will never be homeless in our church, ever. You will never not have a car in our church. If you need something, you have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, possessions, lands, fields, all of it given to you through the reproduction of the kingdom of God, and you will sense this, these kingdom resources that you begin to benefit from as you build the kingdom family. This is what God has gifted us in making disciples. So I want to leave you with this. It's not something that the church is going to do. If you're, if you're seeing this and you're thinking, man, all of these people around me need to start making disciples. I would challenge you, it's, it's you. God's primary calling on your life is to make disciples. And as you think about working somewhere, as you think about marrying somebody, don't get the, the priorities flipped. Don't, don't put the, the wrong lens on first. Put the primary lens on of God is reconciling the nations back to him. He's inviting me to follow him, which means that I will become a fisher of men and women. And I will make disciples because that's what I've been commissioned to do before I've been commissioned to do anything else. All of this points towards his glory. All of this points towards the story that's being written from Genesis 11 to Revelation 7. If you're not making disciples right now, I don't want you to feel shame. I want you to feel anticipation, motivation, conviction to get in the game, to link yourself to somebody who will model to you how to do this and hold you accountable when it's hard to do this and that you would live the next year and the next five years, the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years of your life aimed towards making disciples because it is God's primary calling. And this is what the red letters show us. Resonate. We love you. May it be so with us. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.